Hello everyone, welcome to Millennial Learns. Thank you all so much for joining me today. If you are new, welcome. We have two episodes a week, Mondays and Thursdays. Our Monday episode is on whatever topic I feel like I need to learn about or that someone has requested that I do a podcast episode on that they would like to learn about. I'm really on a kick of researching different belief systems, specifically people who are like offshoots of the Christian church. Now that can get a little sketchy. Today we're doing Mormonism and Mormons by and large consider themselves Christians, but a lot of non-denominational Christians or other denominations of Christianity do not consider Mormons Christians. So, you know, the definition is a little uh, vague there, but I have done like Amish and Mennonite beliefs, Jehovah's Witnesses beliefs. Now we're doing uh, Mormons or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And we're just going to keep going on this train for a while. So if there is a an offshoot of Christianity, or it doesn't even have to be that, like any faith belief system that you would like to know more about, definitely DM me. Uh, my Instagram is Abby Rancor, and I take all sorts of topic suggestions there. So today we are getting into the history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I hope you enjoy. Okay, so let me just give a little background about why I'm interested in this, why I'm interested in these belief systems, but Mormonism and, you know, I've heard that that the LDS Church, Latter-day Saints Church, does not like to be called Mormon anymore. They are now more so going by the full name of Church of Jesus Christ or La of Latter-day Saints or the LDS Church. So, um... I don't know how true that is, if it's just like a small minority of people who like to go by that, or, you know, if some people are fine just being called Mormons, but historically they've been called the, the Mormon Church or Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, but what I have heard is that the term Mormon has been like persecuted a lot, or it's been used as like kind of as almost a slur, and so they have kind of moved away from being called Mormons. But I live in Colorado and historically I haven't seen that many Mormon churches here. There's been a few that I've seen, but recently we moved more east a little bit and the town that we had been living in for like six months now has many Mormon churches. Like where we're building a house, there's one right next door. There was one right next door to where we are temporarily living. So I was like, wow, there are a lot of LDS churches here. I wonder why. And then I, you know, I've had a few Mormon friends as we grew up and a lot of them had family in Utah or Idaho. And so I've just been aware of the church for a while as I've been growing up and I've heard different things that they believe have been a little bit confused by them, but I've never sat down and actually gone through their full like belief system. And I'm sure I'll miss a few things in this podcast episode. So if you are part of this church and would like to come on, definitely DM me because 
for all of these different belief systems, yes, I can go research things, but it's always sometimes jaded with like people who have left the church or it's coming from the church website. And I am very interested in how, I don't know, like the lived experience of someone in the church or what they personally believe. So if you are part of the LDS church, please DM me and come on the podcast. Um, but for right now, I have just done a bunch of research and compiled it. So um, I might be missing something, but this is my best shot at the history and the beliefs of the church. So let's start out with the history. Um, and then we'll dive into the beliefs from there. So history of the church, it's kind of extensive, but here we go. In 1801, Brigham Young is born in Vermont. You might have heard of Brigham Young University, you know, BYU. There's a lot of Brigham Young references if you've been kind of around the Mormon church at all. So he was born in 1801. His story's kind of on pause for a while. And then we go to Joseph Smith. And Joseph Smith, he was actually Joseph Smith Jr., but he was born in Vermont on December 23rd, 1805. So in 1811, he moved to Lebanon, New Hampshire, you know, before they were kind of, they were very poor, I guess they were financially struggling. And once they moved to Lebanon, New Hampshire, their financial situation starts improving and he gets to go to school. Now he doesn't have a ton of school, but he does get to go to school uh, when he was six. In 1812, there's a local typhoid epidemic that kills 6,000 people in his town, and it infects the Smith children. So none of them die, but Joseph developed a leg infection, and initially the doctors thought it would have to require amputation, but he goes through this very new novel surgery that ends up saving uh, his leg. However, he must use crutches for the next three years. He walks with a limp, but he doesn't have to have his leg amputated, which is definitely a plus. Um, in 1816, there were, well, between 1814 and 1816, there were a string of crop failures. So in 1816, it was their third straight year of crop failure. And so the Smith family decides to move to New York, a small town of 4,000 people. Um, and it's known as the burned over district because of the evangelical fervor of its residents this website says i will link this website down below because i'm basically just summarizing exactly what they said here as what as you know the church history so i'll leave that below in 1817 um brigham young we're like flashback to brigham young who is now 16 years old he leaves his family, who is now in New York, and he sets out on his own as a carpenter. So we have a carpenter and like the son of a farmer, and these two will eventually be very instrumental members of the church. So 1820, Joseph Smith, who is now 14, is, you know, there's all these religious people around him, but he doesn't know which denomination to join. He's it says he was troubled by the denominational differences between all of his local Christian friends. He is not sure which one is the right to follow, or he, he's not sure which church is the right one to follow or which denomination to choose. And he's just troubled by this in general. 
So one morning he goes into the woods and he sees this pillar of light descending from heaven, it says, and he, and it was followed by an image of God and Jesus Christ. Now, he doesn't give all the details of this description of the vision until 1839, which is like 19 years later. And I've read a few accounts where his his story changed a little bit about what exactly he saw in this first vision, but what is agreed to is that he saw the pillar of light, then an image of God and Jesus Christ. They are perceived by Joseph as separate personages, personages. Um, and basically in this vision, he he was told that his sins are forgiven and he they warned Joseph um, that all denominations have strayed from the truth and you should not join any of the denominations. So this is known as the first vision and it really does not dramatically change Smith's life. He said he, it says he continues to work for the farm and treasure hunt. Um, he eventually mentions the vision to a local minister and is scorned for it. And yeah, it's not until 19 years later that he really gives a full detailed description of the vision. So that was when he was 14. Then three years later, at the age of 17, he said an angel named Moroni appeared to him and told him he would translate the Book of Mormon. So according to Moroni, this Book of Mormon that he's going to translate is a sacred text written around the 4th century, and it's named after Moroni's father, Mormon, which is where they get the name of the church, because that is who uh, the text is written after. Uh, and it talks about two ancient people who inhabited the Americas. And he said that the book was written on gold plates near Palmyra, New York, which is kind of near where Joseph is staying now that his family has moved to New York. So we'll talk more about like the actual storyline of what's in the Book of Mormon later, because that's really interesting. But for right now, what we need to know is that it just talks about these ancient people that inhabited the Americas. So the plates were revealed in 1823, but he wasn't allowed to retrieve them until uh, 1827. So by this time he has married, uh, he married against her father's will. So his wife's name is Emma. Emma's dad did not want them to get married, but they did anyway. Um, and then he translated and published the Book of Mormon in 1830. So he went, he was told that it was buried on the hill Camorra. People tried to steal the plates a bunch of times. Um, the writing on the plates, he said, was in an ancient language that was translated through the power of the Holy Spirit. He used a special rock to translate these called a seer stone. And... Um, there was this tool that was he found with the plates that said like essentially they looked like a pair of glasses like there was metal that were combining two clear rocks like basically where the glass would be of glasses there were two clear rocks there held on with metal so it looked like glasses that was buried with the plates now, Joseph Smith didn't have that much schooling, as I mentioned, so he couldn't write or spell that well, but it said that God helped him translate, and he also had a scribe um, that helped write down as he 
red, but he wasn't reading the plates physically. He had this seer stone that he would use that would show up the words with this tool to help him translate. So it wasn't like he was actually reading and flipping through pages of this book. Okay, so there are um, only eight men who actually saw and touched the plates. These are written as a witness account in the beginning of the Book of Mormon. It's like there's a story of three witnesses and then there's a story of eight witnesses. And so three of them actually saw the plates, saw an angel and heard God's voice. So that's the three witnesses and then it has a testimony of eight witnesses. Um, so the plates were actually made of very, very thin sheets of metal. They said they were written in a reformed Egypt and the plates together weighed 40 to 60 pounds. Now, here's an interesting part as well. Part of the plates were sealed. So there were part that were open and that you could like move and look at, but then part of them were sealed together. And so the Book of Mormon is from the unsealed part, but but we don't know what's in the sealed part. But part of this whole experience was that Joseph Smith said that God promised that someday that they will have a translation of the sealed part. Okay, so then, like I said, he used a seer stone, saw the words on the stone, and he would read it aloud to one of his scribes uh, that would help write them down. Now, at one point, Joseph Smith gave 116 pages of the translated manuscript over to his scribe, Martin Harris. Now, Martin Harris was a farmer that was financially supporting Joseph Smith during this time. He helped be one of the scribes. He gave the 116 pages of this translated manuscript to Harris, and then Harris lost them. So Joseph was rebuked by the angel Moroni who came back, rebuked him, and took the plates and he lost the ability to translate for a little bit. Joseph then moved to Fayette, Fayette, New York, and then Moroni eventually returned the plates to Smith and be, and let him translate again. Um, and this is when Moroni made the plates available for several witnesses who would later share what they saw uh, with the world. So, like there has been some drama here where um you know he lost some of the manuscript and then he couldn't translate for a while and then now he he finally can okay so in 1828 harris uh who had lost the script um oh sorry that was in 1828 where he loses the copy Okay, in that same year, Joseph Smith uh, and Emma have a child, Alvin, who dies the same day. And it says that actually only five of the couple's 11 kids will live beyond infancy. So that is a terrible um, thing. He, he loses like six of his kids when they're infants, which I guess would, I guess happened a lot more back then, but still extremely sad okay so the whole i should elaborate the whole point where harris loses the manuscript and then moroni takes back the plates and then gives it back that whole thing happens only within a period of like three months or uh it happens between april and september so april is when harris loses the 
script and um and then in june the angel takes away the gold plates for a time as punishment so just a couple months later and then by september smith gets the gold plates back and now he's back to interpreting so that all happens in 1828 okay 1829 um someone named oliver codry uh becomes a scribe for smith as he resumes the translation and the two finish translating the entire thing by june so just a couple more months here they finish up the book of mormon um now in 1829 as they're finishing the book it's said that cowdery and smith are going to the woods and they're praying and they're visited by john the baptist who confers the ironic priesthood upon them it said this is a critically important event in the history of the church since it precedes the restoration of the church john the baptist also tells the two young men that the Melchizedek priesthood will also be restored and that when it is restored, it will give them power to lay ha- lay on hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost. It says, then in anticipation of the organization of the Church of Christ, John the Baptist announces that Smith will be the first elder of the church and Cowdery the second. The men baptize each other in the river. And then in June, Smith has, you know, the translation is done. He's in Fayette, New York still, and he receives a copyright for the Book of Mormon. The 11, oh, sorry, I misspoke earlier. There's 11 witnesses. It's the eight and the three. There are 11 different people. For a second, I thought they were overlapped. Like there's three that got to touch it and see it and stuff. And then there were eight just in total who saw Joseph with it. But there are 11 witnesses. The 11 witnesses sign statements that they have seen the gold plates from the Book of Mormon. Three of them, including Harris, Cowdery, and including Harris and Cowdery, who are the scribes, um, assert that they saw an angel bearing the plates. Okay, in August, Smith finds a publisher for the Book of Mormon, and he starts running an initial print of the Book of Mormon. Again, this is financed by Harris, who was one of the scribes. Okay, in 1830, the first Book of Mormon is published. Now, they start selling copies for $1.25, and Brigham Young, which is where he comes in and their paths cross, Brigham Young is currently a practicing Methodist at this time, in 1830. He has moved to the area with his wife, and he reads the book, It takes him a couple years, but he eventually becomes a baptized Mormon two years after he reads the book. Um, So the first organization meeting of the Church of LDS is held at Whitmer Farm, which is where uh, Joseph Smith is living there, published the book. There's 50 people there at the first church meeting. And then Joseph Smith and the scribe Cowdery are ordained as the elders. Smith is also going to be known as the prophet. So then the first four Mormon missionaries then head west that October. Now that includes, what was his first name again? Cowdery. Um, Oliver. So Oliver is one of the first four missionaries heading west that year. 
okay, in June, Joseph Smith is arrested. This is not, like, this is his first time being arrested, but I don't think it's his last. He is charged with being a disorderly person for his preaching. He's, like, ruffling some feathers here with his preaching, but he's eventually acquitted. Um, and then by October, the missionaries have uh, reached Ohio and Missouri to talk to the Native Americans about this new book, Mormonism as an idea. Uh, it says, also at this time, a Baptist minister named Sidney Rigdon decides to join the LDS and bring his 100-member congregation with him. So it was like a mass. They all got converted with him to the Mormon church. And then it was said that a vision came to Joseph Smith to move the nascent Mormon community west to Kirtland. So they start to settle in Missouri and settle in Independence. Okay, so everyone starts moving at, in 1830 after this vision. By February, they're there. Other church members join them in the spring. So people are slowly starting to move west uh, who identify with this new LDS church. So this is where Joseph Smith gets a bunch of his revelations. There is, well, I'll go over this later, but there's like basically a compilation of all of his visions and revelations that are compiled for the Mormon church. 65 revelations happen here. So a lot of these are, you know, involving the church structure, the organization, how they actually put the organization and the church in place. Um, Okay, so then uh, there's a revelation where it is said that Joseph Smith says that God has revealed um, that independence, or, you know, I think it's this is still in Missouri, uh, will be a gathering place for Mormons and will be the site of the New Jerusalem. So in August of 1831, they lay the cornerstone for the temple and then within the year they have more than 800 church members moved to that area and even though that this is supposed to be the new jerusalem smith still decides to keep his headquarters back in kirtland okay then this is a very interesting part so in this year joseph smith begins to work on an inspired translation of the bible so I'm pretty sure what this means is he's reading the Bible. He's saying, what I think that means is this. He writes that down. That is now going to be an official church doctrine, which raises the hairs on the back of my neck when people say, well, you know, when the Bible says, don't add to these words, don't take them away. He is now working on this inspired translation of the Bible that's added to the Bible in the Mormon church. So that raises my alerts a little bit. But in 1832, um, the first presidency of the Latter-day Saints is established. They have authority over all the church matters. Um, and in that same year, there is growing resentment towards the Mormon influence here. And so Joseph Smith is actually tarred and feathered in front of his house in Kirtland. Now, I thought that that meant he died. He did not die. It's just a form of like punishment. It can be very painful because the tar is hot, but uh, sometimes it was just used as like embarrassment or punishment. So he was tarred and feathered. He did not die, um, 
but that would really suck. In 1833, there's going to be this grand Mormon temple. There's these plans for this huge Mormon temple. Um, and so work begins on that. It's in Kirtland. It's huge, 110 feet high. And this is like their headquarters. So this is where a lot of their time and energy is being put in. It takes three years to complete. Um, okay, the first collection of Smith's Revelations is prepared for publication. It's called the Book of Commandments. This will eventually, the name will be changed, but this is the start of his like compilation of Revelations. Okay, this is where things start to really kind of fall apart in Missouri, on the Missouri front, because they start to suffer a lot of violence. Locals don't like them there. Now, as much as I disagree with the things about the Mormon church, they have suffered a lot of persecution. Um, mob, viol mob violence, it says, drive, uh, drives the Mormons out of Jackson County and across the Missouri River. The Book of Commandments are rescued from the muddy streets and bound, creating the first published collection of his revelations. And, okay, then Brigham Young, whose wife has died since the last time we've seen him, since the last time he was, you know, baptized back in New York, he finally arrives in Kirtland in uh, 1833, at the end of the year. All right, 1835, this is where the name of the Book of Commandments is changed. There's more revelations added to Joseph Smith's original book, and now it's called the Doctrine, uh, the Doctrine and Covenants. So this is now what it's called today. It's a compilation of 138 of Smith's revelations, and it to this day is called the Doctrines and Covenants, and it is an official church document. Um, and I don't think that this is the complete set that was published in 1835. I believe there were more that were added um, to be what today's version is, but this is like the first version of Doctrines and Covenants. Okay, then in 1836, Missouri Mormons are forced to leave Clay County again from all this persecution. Um, on March 27th, there's a large event uh, for the church. A thousand worshipers are um, dedicating the, the temple in Kirtland, and they say that <clears throat> there is rushing winds, a pillar of fire, and the presence of angels that all show up during this dedication. Now, there's a visionary experience, they call it, which occurs, and it says that the prophet and Oliver Cowdery who have retired behind a veil that separates an elevated pulpit from the rest of the temple. They see a personage they believe is Jesus, accepting the temple as a place where he will manifest himself to the people. In addition, they see the Old Testament prophets Moses, Elijah, and Elias, who commit into LDS hands the keys of the gathering of Israel and the new dis dispensation of the fullness of times. So there's a lot of spiritual prophetic things that supposedly happened here. Um, where this is the restoration of the church and this Kirtland area is where a lot of this is is going to happen. Um, okay, they make a bank in this year as well, but then there's an economic panic that, that happens in 1837 and the bank 
collapse. Okay, Mormons then... In 1837, this is kind of a side note. I guess not, because now a lot of Mormons are outside the U.S., but uh, Mormons are taking things international now, so Mormons now begin to evangelize in England. Okay, 1838, um, Joseph Smith escapes Kirtland. He heads for Missouri, arriving there with his family. Um, Many of the Ohio Mormons come with him, and they settle in Caldwell County. He makes plans for a new temple, and he it says he executes, or excommunicate. Oh my gosh, executes that would be bad. He excommunicates old friends and current adversaries, including Cowdery, who has turned against him and accused him of adultery. So things are splitting up here. Things are a little bit uh, tense, I would say. Um. So they do not have a lot of great times with the people around them. There's, again, a lot of persecution, a lot of conflict. This one seems like it kind of goes both ways. It says, while giving a patriotic oration, Rigdon promises that Mormons will defend themselves and warns of a war of extermination with hostile neighbors. Um, There was a whole battle, or they called it a bloody melee, where non-Mormons tried to prevent church members from voting it was escalated to violence at one point um and the missouri governor then orders all mormons to either be driven out from the state or to be wiped out because they are just causing so many issues in missouri no one wants to deal with all this violence so because of that governor's decree an anti-mormon mob massacres church members They kill 17 people, including unarmed children, it says. Um, Smith is arrested. He's charged with treason. He's sentenced to death. His life only spared when the officer, or or his life was only spared when the officer ordered to carry out the execution refuses to do so. But he spends five months in jail. But he survives. So things are getting crazy. I can't believe the Missouri governor actually said, like, they need to be wiped out from Missouri. Of course, that's going to have people try to go kill Mormons. So that's kind of wild. But then Brigham Young leads a lot of the Missouri Mormons to safety in Illinois. Um, Smith escapes and makes his way to Illinois. He buys land. And then eventually Joseph Smith actually travels to Washington to meet Martin Van Buren, who is the president there joseph smith argues for compensation for the mormon church for all their losses for all of this and the president basically says like we feel sorry for you but we can't do anything there's nothing legally we can we can do um so then joseph smith becomes the mayor and the military leader of the city he establishes a city charter and he becomes mayor um, and then their city, I think, is called Novu. Novu, I want to say. It says it quickly grows, and within four years, it's nearly the size of Chicago. And I was confused why that would happen, because it doesn't seem like Mormonism is really catching on. It's being really persecuted at this point. But it says that there was an influx of Mormon converts from Europe that came and bolstered the city size. Okay, here's where things get real interesting. In 1843... Joseph Smith says that he's gotten two 
new revelations. The first one is that the dead can be baptized. That is one of his new practices that he says has been revealed to him. The second is polygamy. So he says, uh, okay, not only is it permissible, but in certain cases, polygamy is required, specifically that his wife Emma must obey uh, polygamy or like his practicing of polygamy. So this causes huge division between the Mormon church. Brigham Young said he would rather die than to accept this, which he later actually does accept it. And Joseph Smith's wife, Emma, says that she doesn't want to be part of this, even though the revelation that Joseph Smith supposedly got specifically calls out Emma. It says, my sir, my handmaid, Emma Smith, must accept the new people that, you know, Joseph Smith will bring into this marriage. So the revelation specifically says Emma must accept polygamy. Uh, it says, although the doctrine will not be publicly announced for nearly a decade, rumors quickly spread, increasing anti-Mormon feeling. Joseph Smith will eventually have more than 25 wives, while Young will come to embrace the doctrine, taking 20 wives and fathering 57 children. So polygamy is made legal here and actually necessary, but so I... This is a little side note, but I looked up why polygamy is not practiced now. There's a certain amount of fundamentalists that do still practice polygamy, but it's only estimated to be about thirty to 60,000 people as opposed to the you know millions that are in the church. I think it was like 13 million people are in the church now. And that is because there was another prophet later that said, okay, the time for polygamy is closed. We do not practice polygamy anymore. It was only for this short window for the early church members that polygamy was actually allowed. Okay, Smith tries to run for the president of the United States. He announces in a sermon that those who obey God's commands can become gods themselves, which is very much a stray on non-denominational Christianity. And uh, orders the destruction of an opposition newspaper, the Novo Expositor. There's an outcry. There are criminal charges that are brought against him. He starts to flee, but he changes his mind and surrenders to the state authorities. And then while he's in jail, him and his brother are shot and killed by members of a mob. No one ever gets charged for the crime. No one's ever convicted for the crime. He just, he dies in jail. After that, there's no leader of the Mormon church. So there's a struggle for this power of the Mormon church. They're divided whether they should follow the Council of the Twelve, which is like a governing body in the church, if they should follow the surviving members of the Smith family, or if they should follow the remaining members of the First Presidency, or there's a fourth option. Well, there's a lot of other options, but those are those are the main three. But then the fourth option that's listed is a variety of other potential leaders. So just like leaders in the church, a few names, James J. Strong or Lyman, Lehman Witt. So no one really knows who to follow. Um, a lot of people who are in this new town area that Joseph kind of led them to leave. Some remain, uh, I guess a lot remain, but many also start heading out. 
Okay, 1846, it says, facing further harassment, thousands of Mormons uh, leave on a great march west. Some of them follow the two other men that I mentioned, um, but a lot settle, um, well, a lot settle in the Midwest following those other men, but Brigham Young, who is the head of the 12 Apostles group, which is another church leadership body, directs another big exodus, um, they travel more hundred more than 300 miles to temporary quarters like right in the divide between Iowa and Nebraska. They wait out the winter for um, between 1846 and 1847. Then they start moving west again. Uh, let's see. Then the Novu Temple is completed and dedicated during this time, although still many people have left that area. Um... A lot of polygamous marriages are made legal here or are uh, solemnized here. And then, let's see. Okay, in 1847, the Mormon Pioneer Company led by Young, so these are the people that are marching west through like Nebraska and Iowa. Um, you know, he says he's been plagued with self-doubt, but there's a vision that he got in February of 1847 that renews his confidence and on July 24th of that year, they reach the Great Salt Lake Valley. Now, this is an actual, this is considered a holiday by the Mormon church. So I watch a lot of YouTube. If I have not mentioned that before, I watch a lot of like lifestyle YouTubers and I watch Aspen Ovart. And one year she was talking about how they went, I don't know, to like Southern Utah, cause they live in Utah to celebrate uh, Pioneer Day and I had never heard of it they said it's basically just an, a Mormon only holiday and this is the origin of Pioneer Day it's because Young's Pioneer Party reached Salt Lake City or the Great Salt Lake Valley on July 24th of 1847 and so now this is like an accepted Mormon holiday um, he is made the church president later that year and he confirms that yes this is the place that mormons will settle beyond the boundaries of what is currently the united states his followers mark off an acre that will be reserved for a temple and then begin laying city streets and setting up irrigation systems so they're really who settled utah what is currently utah before it was actually made a state all right so then um let's see here what we want to jump down to so congress then in 1848 approves the treaty of guadalupe hidalgo um so mexico cedes much of the western territory including utah including where uh these mormons have now just settled to the united states a lot more Mormons then make the trek from those winter quarters that we talked about to the Great Salt Lake Valley. Uh, and they really start settling in what they call the Inner Mountain West. Um, okay. In 1850, there, I mean, there, it goes through many names, but essentially Utah is renamed to be named Utah and it's made a U.S. territory. Brigham Young is then appointed the governor of the Utah territory. So that's why like 
Utah. First of all, this is so heavily Mormon. And then also why Brigham Young's name is everywhere, because he was the first governor of Utah and he led all of the Mormons across the country to settle here. So he was a big, big deal in the LDS church history, like almost as big of a deal as Joseph Smith, because he kind of was like the second generation of the church once Smith died. In 1852 is when the doctrine of polygamy is actually made public outside the church. This is where there is a widespread condemnation and persecution of Mormons because they reject this idea of polygamy. Uh, in 1853, this kind of shows this, the schism of the Mormon church where there's a lot of people that never accepted the idea that polygamy was a revealed doctrine. And so they get together, hold a conference in Wisconsin to found the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So this is still there today. Again, this is not as many people as what's in the, what is just known as the standard like LDS church. But there is this denomination, even within Mormonism, that's called the reorganized Church of Latter, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And they never believe that polygamy was valid. Um, this is also the organization that really thinks that the church should have been taken over by this, the remaining members of the Smith family instead of Brigham Young. Okay, in 1855, Mormon missionaries establish a settlement in what will become Las Vegas. They're also established in California and some parts of Wyoming. Okay, 1857, James Buchanan, who is currently the president, reacts to reports that Young is ruling Utah as a personal theocracy and says that the territory, as a result, is in rebellion. They send 2,500 soldiers west from Kansas, and the Mormons, like, there's no armed resistance, it says, but the Mormons, har the Mormon the Mormons harass the military's supply trains. Um, they eventually then attack a wagon train of settlers from Arkansas. They slaughter 120 men, women, and children. It's known as the Mountain Meadows Massacre. And there's only 17 kids under the age of eight that are spared. Um, this is a hotly debated subject because many people did not agree with this, even in the Mormon church. And so they were investigating whether Young, uh, whether Brigham Young, like, authorized or directed this massacre he they said evidence suggests that at the very least he covered up the truth of the crimes so that is why i don't know it was very hotly debated a lot of anti-mormons will bring this event up as like how brigham young wasn't that great of a guy uh, but people in the church i think a lot of times say that he either didn't know and these people were were acting on their own. Okay, Joseph Smith III, who is Joseph Smith's son, becomes the president of the reorganized church in 1860. Um, in 1862, in all U.S. territories, there is an act called the Anti-Bigamy Act, the Moral Anti-Bigamy Act, which um, criminalizes plural marriage in U.S. territories, but Lincoln will not enforce it. Um, okay, so then basically this is just a time of like building 
the city, the church is growing. It has almost 60,000 members through like the 1860s. Um, there's a big battle over polygamy um, stuff. So this man named John D. Lee is the only individual brought to trial for the uh, massacre. Uh, he is eventually, he has to be retried and convicted of murder. He's executed. And then in 1877, Brigham Young dies. The church now has over 100,000 members. The Supreme Court then, at the end of the 70s, upholds the Morrill Act, which makes polygamy a felony and disenfranchises all who practice it. So the court upholds the Morrill Act, and then there's another act called the Edmonds Act, and that is what makes polygamy a felony. Um, by eight, the end of the 1800s, so 1893, a thousand Mormons, more than a thousand, have been convicted of unlawful cohabitation. And then in 1870, or 1887, there's an Edmonds-Tucker Act. So this Edmonds guy is very against the Mormon church. He passed multiple acts. <laughs> um, it disincorporates the Mormon church and gives the federal government all church property over $50,000, which seems wrong that the government can do that, but the Supreme Court upheld it. Okay, um, basically the church just changes some, you know, church leadership, and then Utah is granted statehood in 1896. Um, okay, then in 1904, polygamy is now not a church accepted doctrine so the church threatens polygamists with excommunication and cooperates with federal authorities in prosecuting them so there's a big shift in church doctrine um now if you have not heard of the reorganized church of jesus christ of latter-day saints that is because they changed their name in 2001 to the community of christ so if you hear a denomination called the Community of Christ. That is actually basically the LDS church pre-polygamy ideas um, that has been carried on by the Smith family. So then it says, today, as of 2007, there are 13 million members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. There are more members living outside than inside the United States. The Community of Christ has about 150,000 members, although there are several schismatic groups who continue to call themselves Reorganized Latter-day Saints, who they say probably have another about 100,000 members. There's also um, some fundamentalist groups that still do practice polygamy, as I mentioned, and that's anywhere between 30 and 60,000 people. So that is the history of the Mormon church. So let's get into what the actual like books are that they follow, which we've, we've mentioned many of them, or not many, there's only four. We've mentioned some of them, but we'll go into a little bit more detail and then we'll actually show what the Book of Mormon says and the storyline within that book. So I thought that Mormons only really had two books one being the bible one being the book of mormon that's actually not true there's four books or documents that are like canonized in you know the mormonism canon so there's the bible there's a book of mormon there's the book of doctrine and covenants which we mentioned and then there's the pearl of great price 
So the Book of Doctrine and Covenants is a collection of divine revelations and inspired declarations given for the establishment and regulation of the kingdom of God on earth in the last days. This is from like a LDS website. Although most of the sections, although most of the sections are directed to members of the Church of Latter, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, the messages, warnings, and exhortations are for the benefit of all mankind and contain an invitation to people everywhere. Um, it says that uh, in there, the voice of Jesus Christ is speaking to them for their temporal well-being and their everlasting salvation. Most of the revelations in this compilation were received through Joseph Smith Jr., the first prophet and the president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Others were issued through some of his successors in the presidency. So again, this is just a compilation of mostly Joseph Smith's revelations. This is where polygamy became okay. And then later, um, a prophet came and said that it's now not okay. So um, let's see. I have this website that I'll link below that has a whole page about why Mormons no longer believe in uh, polygamy. But essentially, it just goes through and does the entire detailed church history that we kind of went over, but then says that, like, yes, this other living prophet named Wilford Woodruff, in 1890, it was revealed to him that the time for polygamy was to come to an end. So leaders from that time forward upheld monogamy as the rule, which is why in the early 1900s, then church leaders then cooperated with the federal government to persecute people practicing polygamy. Okay, then the Pearl of Great Price was not mentioned a ton like in the church history that I found, but it's basically a compilation of a few different things. One is that inspired version of the Bible that Joseph Smith was working on that was mentioned in the church history. Then there are some writings from the prophet Abraham, as well as excerpts from Joseph Smith's testimony in history. So like his personal testimony is in there. And then the Articles of Faith of the Church as a whole are all compiled, and that is called the Pearl of Great Price. So all four of those documents, um, the Book of Mormon, the Pearl of Great Price, the Doctrines and Covenants, and the Bible are all combined to be the governing documents of the Church. So now the Book of Mormon, if you're curious about their actual timeline of what happens in the Book of Mormon, because I mentioned that it, it talks about ancient peoples in the Americas. So basically it says that there's a prophet in Jerusalem named Lehi. He is warned in a dream to leave Jerusalem with his family because it's going to be destroyed in the Babylonian, uh, like destroying of Jerusalem. He's warned he leaves to come to the Americas and he has three sons. Their names are La uh, Laman, Lemuel, and Nephi. The two oldest ones don't believe their dad really and they're not following God or they're having a hard time following God but the younger brother Nephi is full of faith and chosen by God to lead his family. So the brothers split up they make two different groups one are the Nephites and one are the Lamanites. They're often at war it says they're not very peaceful to each other and so they are constantly fighting but Eventually, Jesus visits the Americas after he's resurrected in Jerusalem, and he establishes a church 
the idea of baptism, forgiveness, and heals a bunch of sick people there. The people listen to Jesus and they live in peace for hundreds of years. Eventually that kind of, the peace falls apart. Again, they struggle with their faith and then they go back to war. The Nephites end up, um, or sorry, the Nephites, yeah, are wiped out and the Lamanites who survive are considered to be the ancestors of the American Indians. So it says there's like this huge, huge war and we'll go into that later in the archaeological evidence uh, little section that I have. But yeah, essentially the Nephites are completely wiped out. So what are the beliefs of Mormons just in general other than like what they believe the history is? So I went on the LDS website and it says that the fundamental beliefs are the testimony surrounding the apostles and prophets concerning Jesus Christ. He was, he died, was buried and he rose again, and then he ascended into heaven. So they believe that everyone is a spirit child of God and had, and already lived with him in heaven before we came to earth. So before we were ever born, we were in heaven already with God, which makes a lot of sense because if anyone watches the YouTubers, Brooklyn and Bailey, they are part of the Mormon church and one of them just got married. And I remember part of another thing that sparked my wanting to research Mormonism is because during the toasts of the wedding, they were talking about how, you know, how close the twins are and how they're each other's soulmates and stuff. And something struck me as odd because their dad said, God knew that you couldn't just come to earth with one of you. So he made sure to send both of you down to earth from heaven together. And I was like, what? Do they believe that we were already in heaven and then we came down? And they do. They believe everyone is a spirit child of God living in heaven with him before they come to earth. So we wanted to be like him and live like he does, but we aren't prepared to do so. And so we have to come to earth, receive a physical body. We don't remember our home in heaven yet, but our time on earth is to learn, to grow, to progress and be tested. And in that way, we can qualify ourselves to return to the presence of God and live as he does. Now, they knew we would be, he knew that we would be subjected to sin and death. And so that's why he sent Jesus. Um, they believe Jesus and Satan are spirit brothers. And they were both given free will to choose to be evil or good. Naturally, Satan chose to be evil and Jesus chose to be good. Life is like a testing ground for all of us, but for Jesus as well, to see if they qualified to become a God or not. Jesus qualified to become God. So each presented a plan for salvation, but Jesus was accepted. And so he was the savior that was born to Mary. So he essentially knew that mankind was needed to be saved. And so he presented this plan and that was accepted. And so Jesus was born as a human being so that he could basically carry out his plan. Um, so they believe that God has a physical body and that God got to be a God gradually over time by living a righteous life. So they believe that God, the God that we serve in heaven right now was once a man like those on earth today, but he is seen as an exalted man and he's, is essentially not a God from all of eternity. He, they believe that he used to be a man that lived on another planet through a very, very good life. He became an exalted man and he was able to rule on another planet 
um, and become basically the god of that planet. Um, and he is now ruling over us, which is like a new chain of spirit beings and gods. So the belief is that if you live a very, very, very good life, you could be exalted over your own planet and become a god. Um, so the Book of Mormon, as we mentioned, is a sacred text. It supersedes the authority of the Bible. So if there's anything contradicting the Bible and the Book of Mormon from this now, I should say this to take this with a grain of salt, because I've seen that they're put on equal ground on some websites and some show the Book of Mormon can supersede the authority of the Bible because the Bible was made in a piecemeal type of way. It was translated and put together piecemeal, whereas Joseph Smith's was all in one go. And so it's seen as more of a solid testimony. Um, so I think they tend to take the Book of Mormon with more authority than the Bible. So, okay, so I looked up if there's any archaeological evidence from the Book of Mormon and there are conflicting messages. So some Mormons say, yes, there is. One was that like there are a history of metal plates being encapsulated in stone. There's these altars that were found. Um, there is cement. Like one of the big things that Joseph Smith said was is that cement was used and People said cement was not used that early, but then they eventually found cement walls that date to about the time that the Mormon church says that they should be. Um, and then he talks about barley being in the Americas and people used to say like there was no barley around the, at this time and now they found some archeological evidence that barley was used at this time. So there were these five examples in a website that I found that suggest like maybe some of the things that Joseph Smith that were discounted before that Joseph Smith said maybe shouldn't have been discounted. However, when I go to this other website, it talks about Mormon archaeology and even like BYU, more like people part of the Mormon church in their archaeology department said that these may not be tied to actual new world things that have actually happened. The main, I'll just link the thing below because this could go in for like two more hours of a podcast about the archaeology of the Mormon church. But the one thing that was con pretty convincing to me is that it says exactly where this battle happened. There's not a lot of confusion about where they believe the battle happened. Now, I mentioned that there's this huge battle where the uh, Nephites were wiped out by the Lamanites. It said that 100,000 people were slaughtered. Okay. This link that I'll um, link below said is from bethinking.org and it talks about how in Gettysburg 6,000 people died and a bunch of people were wounded, but that it was so bloody that like they thought the battlefield had streams of blood, like they couldn't decipher dirt from blood. It was the most like horrific battle. And 6,000 people died. So they said, imagine 100,000 people died, how gruesome that would be. But we find bones of like Gettysburg. We find um, things like, we would find bones essentially. 
well, there's been no bones found anywhere near that area, especially not of 100,000 people. They would be up at the surface. They would be dug. Like, you should be able to find something. There's no evidence that this actual battle happened. So maybe something could be found in the future, but it seems like there are, I mean, there are full, like, BYU uh, archaeologist groups that are dedicated to this, and they find no bones of this battle. The other thing is the Bible is used by archaeologists like in Jerusalem and, you know, in the Middle East to go find things. And there's been a lot of evidence supporting biblical records uh, from archaeology. It seems like the same thing should happen over here. Um, The Book of Mormon is not considered a reliable archaeology source like the Bible is. So it doesn't seem to me like there are any huge things that suggest that the Book of Mormon is solid historically with archaeological evidence. So that's where I'm going to leave it at that. I'll link all the um, articles I found below for both sides because some of the the ones that were brought up do seem pretty um, convincing for there being some archaeological archaeological evidence for Mormonism like some of the altars that were built that maybe don't date back like that wouldn't make sense for the Native Americans um you know like Joseph Smith wouldn't have known about these altars but they found them there and so there are some either coincidences or good evidence that some things maybe happened but like this battle nothing is found no real archaeological evidence from the other stuff happening supposedly in the Americas so Again, I will leave that all below so you can go do your own research about it, but I don't want to go on for two hours about this archaeological stuff. But that is where I will leave the podcast of the Book of Mormon and the LDS Church in general. So I hope you enjoyed that. I hope it was very interesting to you. If you are part of this church and I've missed anything very important, definitely DM me. I'm always interested in hearing and we can do like a revisited episode, but that is what I could find on the core beliefs of Mormons. So again, hope you enjoyed it. Make sure to rate and review the podcast if you did and go follow me on Instagram at Abby Rancor and I will see you all on Thursday for a, a Bible episode. Bye everyone. Hey, this is Abby. Really quick, after recording the episode, I realized that I wanted to research more about like temple activities and um why mormons don't drink alcohol or why mormons a lot of mormons don't drink caffeine or choose to do certain things different um just customs of the lds church so there's gonna be a part two on this topic um because we went so much into the history and the the texts and things like that but i do want to get into like more the everyday life of people in the LDS church. So this is part one. Uh, Keep an eye out for part two. Okay, that's all. Bye.